All right, welcome to the TransAsia and the World podcast. I'm Galen Poor, and I'm here with my colleague Joshua Tan. Hello. And today we're interviewing Professor Joseph Ho. He is a historian of modern Chinese and U.S. history and an assistant professor at Albion College in Michigan. He is also the center associate at the University of Michigan Lieberthal Rogel Center for Chinese Studies. His current research is on photography and filmmaking in 20th century China by Christian missionaries. Uh, welcome, Joe. Thank you. So your research that you've told us about is on, yeah, like I said, photography by Christian missionaries in China during the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And you really focus on uh, this new technology of the roll camera, you know, the kind of camera that you can put the film in and it's very versatile. You can take uh, pictures of everyday life uh, and you're, you really describe how these, this new technology was important, uh, made an impact on the mission and experience of that um, missionary community. So can you first tell us your inspiration? How did you get interested in this topic? Yeah, so I, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I've been interested in uh, Christianity in China as well as um, modern photography for a long time, uh, both academically and personally. Um, and uh, when I was younger, I loved to restore old cameras and also listen to these family stories of my grandparents growing up in uh, various parts of East Asia China and Taiwan. And I, I figured that um, it would be interesting to combine each of these uh, elements in, in what I do. And also looking at the fact that uh, missionaries produced so many images of China, of East Asia, there was a wealth of material. Yeah. Um, and so could you just tell us a little bit about how you came across these, these images? How did you get the archive that you work with in your project? Mm, sure. So it was a kind of by chance that I uh, came across at least the first images I, I worked with from missionary families. Um, I was working at the Chinese Historical Museum in San Diego as an undergraduate uh, in 2009. I had just finished a uh, honors thesis on Western photographers in wartime China, and while I was at the museum, essentially working the front desk as this administrative intern, uh, a gentleman walks in, an uh, elderly man, and he has all of these artifacts he wants to donate to the museum. In chatting with him, I asked him where he got the artifacts, if he was a collector or a scholar, and he said, no, I am a child of Presbyterian missionaries. I was born in China in 1934. And I, I kind of thought about that and asked him, do you have any photographs? And he said, yes, I do. I have hundreds of photos at home that my parents uh, took in China in the 1930s and 1940s. Would you like to see them? So I eventually uh, got to his house, um, and the man's name was Dr. Richard Hankey. Uh, and uh, Dr. Hankey essentially um, opened up these albums and folders full of photographs and eventually also showed me um, a large metal box full of 16 millimeter movie film that his parents had also shot in black and white and color between 1931 and 1949. And uh, essentially he put me in touch with one family after the other. I started to branch out into Catholic religious orders and discovered that there was so much out there uh, that I had not known about before. Yeah, that's, you know, 
when you start studying China, especially as a non-Chinese person, and you tell people in America about it, it's really shocking, like how many people have a personal or like family history connection there mm -hmm. that you that's wouldn't right. expect. Um, so that's, that's really cool that you, you're kind of tapping into a huge amount of this um, really grassroots research material. Mm -hmm. So that actually leads me to my big question that's almost like a, a nightmare almost of what do you do with so much material? Like, how mm. do you decide what's useful when you're going to someone's house that like, oh, wow, the, their collection is giving me something new? Because I can imagine it's just like almost limitless. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I have to be selective uh, in terms of thinking about um, <clears throat> what stories I want to tell about the material, um, how I can fit it into a certain region. Um, when I'm thinking about my, my book currently, my book manuscript, um, it covers all these different regions in China um, and time periods. So it, it really comes down to how I can use the material most effectively uh, in terms of the, the context, because I would I often try to look for um, materials that have um, other provenance um, in terms of um, oral histories in these families that can help me add more color and context to the material, how they fit into larger Chinese histories, histories of U.S. encounters with China, um, and essentially picking and choosing the kinds of materials I can most effectively tell stories about using the other contexts that I, that I have. Um, and it's related also to the amount of preservation that I can do. So my project is on the one hand scholarly and on the other archival. Um, a lot of these materials have never been in an archive um, or still exists in, in basements and attics and garages. And part of the underlying project is to find a way to preserve them, to stabilize them, to prevent them from decaying or getting lost. Uh, and then choosing the stories to tell about them uh, that fit into the broader history. Yeah, I think one of, one of the inter interesting things in this project is that I think that the missionary aspect, right? The, the people who are taking the photographs are all Christian, you mm -hmm. know, Protestant and Catholic missionaries. So could you maybe just talk about, you know, were there any other people taking, you know, taking pictures or taking videos at this time? And what's the significance of the fact that the people producing these images are missionaries? Mm -hmm. Great, yes. Uh, so certainly uh, in the early 20th century, mid-20th century, there are uh, many other people taking, uh, making images in China. Um, filmmakers, diplomats, tourists, travelers, um, scholars. Uh, but for the missionaries, what helps them stand out is, uh, first of all, they're living in China for years and years and years. Uh, compare that to a tourist who may be in Beijing for a week or two weeks and then moves on like any kind of tourist today. Um, or uh, a diplomat who might be there for some time, um, but of course has a kind of different higher level view of um, Chinese politics, everyday life. The missionaries are deeply embedded in local environments for years on end. They also have the benefit in the 19-teens through the 1940s and early 50s of having mobile film and photography technology. 
So they have these small cameras, uh, as Galen, you referenced earlier, with these roll, with the roll film. Then um, amateur movie cameras come on the scene and they can make movies readily. And they're combining their cross-cultural encounters on the ground with this amateur uh, photography and filmmaking. And that's, that, I believe, produces a kind of image, a kind of body of uh, visual material that is different from the casual traveler or uh, even the scholar who might be, be there for a short amount, shorter amount of time compared to uh, decades of residence. So can you say like one of the coolest stories that you discovered? Because it's really what you're describing. It's not just pictures. Mm-hmm. It's people telling their personal stories, people who've mm-hmm. spent a lot of time or their, their parents or grandparents spent a lot of time in China back then. Mm-hmm. So what was something that was like the most exciting or surprising thing you found? Right. So oh, there, there are so many. Um, I think to, to, I'll give a couple examples. Um, the first would be um, a strange kind of encounter or even um, local ecumenism in terms of photography. Uh, I've I found that in one um, city in uh, Hunan, there were Protestant and Catholic missionaries who were talking about photography with each other, even though this is a time in the early 1920s when Protestants and Catholics really aren't talking to each other about um, other issues. Yeah. Um, there's this incidence where, where um, these Protestant missionaries essentially knock on the door of the Catholic mission. They come down the hill, they knock on the door of the Catholic mission, and these priests open the door and they essentially say, we want to take a picture of our mission. Can we climb your church tower to take a picture of your mission? Because we can't get it from where we are up on the hill. And the, the, the priests are like, oh, okay, sure, you can do that. And they end up talking about um, photography. They end up talking about um, the role of the Pope and uh, all sorts of other kind of religious and cultural um, topics. And they find out that they're, they're all Americans. And they've somehow ended up in China and encounter each other because of the need to take these photos. Um, and find a good vantage point. So that's one example, very surprising um, for me. Another would be the story of the lost films. And here we fast forward in time to 1941, 1942 in Shandong province. Um, There is an American Presbyterian medical missionary family, uh, the Scovels, and they are in uh, Jining in Shandong, and they are put under house arrest by the Japanese military after Pearl Harbor. And they uh, knock a hole in the wall of their house in the upper floors. And they hang all of their prized possessions with strings in between the walls of the house um, and then plastered back up. They, uh, and they, they essentially, they later on go on to the... Um, uh, uh, Weifang or Weixian um, internment camp. After the war, they come back to China from the United States after they've been repatriated. They go up to the attic and they break down the walls and they take up they take out most of their stuff, but their films are gone, uh, and they don't know where the films are, so they just move on. And it's not until the early two thousands when workers are tearing down the house that is now abandoned in this city that they find these canisters of film that have fallen basically between the walls 
of this old mission house. They call someone in from the city museum. They open up the cans, and they find the film is still viewable. Uh, and they um, digitize the film. And when the two oldest sons of this family come back to visit their old childhood home, they are surprised with this screening of movies that they haven't seen since the 1930s, 1940s, um, that were, were basically lost between the walls of this house. Um, I should also add that the Scovels, um, before their internment, also smuggled out one reel of color film, movie film, mm. that was sent through the Chinese Postal Service in wartime, made its way from North China to Chongqing, and then was put on an airplane and sent um, over the Himalayas to India, from India across the Atlantic to the only place in the world that could process color film at that time, and it was Rochester, New York. Hmm. And the film sat there, it was processed, and there was no return address. As things go, Dr. Scoville, when he is repatriated from the internment camp with his family, gets a job as company physician at Eastman Kodak. And someone comes into his office one day and says, hey, Scoville, there's a film here with your name on it. Is it yours? And he's basically reunited with this film that this family had shot while in house arrest in North China um, that has made its way all around the world along with um, the members of this family. And I have that film. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting because I think one of the stories you were telling is about how film is being uncovered in your project mm -hmm. um, from private archives or from these previously hidden sources. Um, what about the time period you were studying um, in the Republican period until mm -hmm. the 1940s? Um, could you tell us a bit about what the circulation of these missionary images was like? Um, how did it shape, I mean, who was the audience that the film was intended for? And, and how did it shape um, opinions of China in the U.S., for example? Sure. Yeah. So I, I essentially start with the um, late 1910s. Um, I go until the late 1940s, early 1950s. Um, but these photographs, uh, photographs uh, are essentially being reprinted in magazines, both religious magazines and secular magazines. Um, I found that missionaries were frequent contributors to National Geographic. Um, they're also producing their own publications. So Americans, both in religious contexts and secular context, contexts, are um, consuming these images, um, photographs from missionaries, whether they know it or not. Um, this, for many Americans, uh, may be the first time they have seen images of rural areas in China, um, as well as of um, urban centers, major historical developments, um, and many of them are coming from missionary cameras. The films um, have a more limited circulation uh, in terms of movie film because uh, you can't print it in the magazine. Um, it's not as easily circulated. But missionaries are traveling back and forth between China and the United States carrying movie film for presentation in churches both in China as well as the United States. Um, the Hankies, um, the family I referenced earlier, um, end up getting this movie camera from a congregation in upstate New York that pays for a uh, cutting-edge, spring-wound um, Cinecodac movie camera, 16mm, that they ship to China. And the Hankies make this film of 
churches and hospitals and their everyday life in China, they take it back to New York to screen it for people in the United States in the mid-1930s. And then they shoot films in the U.S. and take that back to China to show to Chinese audiences. So the films themselves become missionary agents, and they shape how Americans and Chinese see each other as well as what it means to have a modern experience. Yeah, can you? I'd like to hear you speak a little bit more, more about that because um, anybody who studies China, you know, learns about missionaries going back to you know Ricci mm-hmm. in the you know 17th century. Um, that uh, when missionaries go abroad, they have to justify their expenditure and justify mm-hmm. their their presence out there back in their with their home audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so for centuries, that meant writing, you know, mm-hmm. those texts um, telling their account, you know, giving some impression of the, the Chinese as people that were uh, capable of being converted and worthy, worthy of being converted. Um, so can you say like where uh, photography and film fits in that pretty old tradition, mm-hmm. you know, of missionaries? Like what, what exactly are they trying to convince Americans of, you mm-hmm. know? Sure. So certainly uh, photos in film uh, present a kind of reality or uh, framed reality, uh, so to speak, for American audiences. Um, certainly the missionaries are using these images uh, to raise support, um, see like this is what we're doing in the mission hospital. Here are our successes. Here are our challenges. Um, uh, see how this kind of visual reality um, reflects our experience and also encourages people to be part of that experience in terms of uh, fundraising or spiritual support, you know, pray for, um, you know, this community that you're seeing on film. So it's certainly used in that way um, that fits into the older tradition. On the other hand, the mentality of missionaries in the 20s and 30s is shifting toward indigenization. Um, thinking less of the Chinese as these heathen others and more as partners in a modernizing mission that is connected to global Christianity. So these materials, these uh, visual artifacts are simultaneously modern and produced in a modern project. Um, There's a great uh, article in the Chinese Recorder, this ecumenical Christian magazine, published in Shanghai, and it's from 1929, this particular article, and it's the modern significance of the missionary. And essentially, the article argues for missionaries as being citizens of the world, um, making bridges, um, not being like what they call our primitive forebears that uh, came to China to kind of essentially have this heavy-handed presentation of Christianity. We are now partnering with the Chinese, and uh, modern images like this Um, essentially reinforce and provide people ways of imagining that modern Christian project in China. Mm. That's interesting. I I wonder whether you could just talk a little bit more about the missionaries, because based on what I understand, most of your focus is on like the ecumenical uh, movement or the the ecumenical missionaries who are trying to indigenize Christianity. And I think there is another strain of like the fundamentalist missionaries who were, I guess, in, in, in some posture, anti-modern. So I, I wonder whether mm-hmm. there was a kind of ambivalent relationship between, you know, these fundamentalist missionaries and uh, 
technology and, and the use of cameras. Mm-hmm. I don't sure. know if you touched on that in your research at all. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, as things go, the, I think m- the people I work on would fall more on the liberal side of, uh, <laughs> of uh, politics and, and theology, although they are believing in orthodox doctrine, uh, the way they carry out missions would be considered more modern, more progressive, uh, more liberal. Um, I, I, from what I know, um, more fundamentalist missionaries are using visual technology um, as well. Their, their contexts, of course, and their beliefs are different. Um, in terms of the groups I have kind of touched upon in my research, the fundamentalist missionaries in terms of faith-supported missions um, tended to be less well-funded and therefore less able to access um, more expensive technologies like like photography and especially film. So they have less of a visual footprint, so to speak. Um, Again, we should probably qualify that because there are missionaries within the groups I work with who would be more conservative in terms of their theology Mm-hmm. Um, versus the more liberal ones. Uh, I do have to say that in thinking about your question, there is this Catholic order, the order that I mentioned earlier, meeting those Protestants to climb the tower, um, the Passionists who arrive in China in the early 1920s. And they are f- very conservative in their theology. They are um, trying to make a footprint in China. Um, they uh, arrive in Hunan and end up um, having missions in West Hunan. They are also using photography, but in opposition to other Catholic orders because they're late on the scene. The Maronol missionaries have been there earlier. The European Catholics have been there earlier than the Maronol missionaries from the United States. And this American Passionist order wants to solidify their media presence. So they end up taking more images and printing them in a magazine back in the U.S. to show we are also capable of doing the kinds of work that these more established religious orders have been doing. So there's also a kind of uh, uh, inter-service rivalry going on with the Catholics. Yeah, that's interesting. Because and I think you're, what you're talking about now is the is how how it kind of speaks to audiences back home. And uh, in this period, especially in the maybe 1930s, 40s. Um, you know, there are other famous works of literature by Edgar Snow or Pearl Buck, for example, that, mm-hmm. you know, we think of as having shaped American public opinion about mm-hmm. China in a very significant way. Yes. Do you have a sense of how, like, images compared to these works of, you know, texts and whether, yeah, the, the role of images has been overlooked in this regard in shaping American opinions about China? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, certainly the, the images that these missionaries are taking are... are um, Engaging people in ways that text uh, that, that are beyond text, um, speaking to kind of visual realities, imagination, um, uh, the uh, the photograph as something that has been there, um, using Roland Barthes' uh, kind of formulation about the um, indexicality of images. You see it, you know that um, whatever was before the lens was there, and you're now looking at a small form of this reality. Um, so people are certainly looking at images in this way. They represent some kind of actual experience, though, though framed in, in multiple ways. Um, and in terms of how it fits into other American consciousness, these images don't remain in missionary circles. Uh, for example, the 
only film images that we have of the Nanjing Massacre were produced by an American Episcopal missionary named John McGee, who was in Nanjing with a movie camera when the Japanese army arrived. And these films are smuggled out of Nanjing. They're processed in Shanghai, in occupied Shanghai. And they're screened for the first time for an American church audience there. And then they're taken to Europe. They're taken to the United States. They're reprinted in Life magazine. And all of a sudden, these images leave the missionary mold and enter American popular consciousness as these first images of the rape of Nanjing that people are seeing. So there's all of these afterlives uh, when it comes to American popular opinion, uh, perceptions of China that are tied in some way to missionaries and their visual production. It seems like the the real significance of the missionary photographer is that uh, how embedded they are, that, like you said, you know, it's the only photographer of the Nanjing massacre because that's kind of the nature of missionaries, right? That they're, mm-hmm. they're where other foreigners aren't, mm-hmm. uh, right? Right. So that's what makes them significant as, uh, mm-hmm. as a kind of figure, right? Right. They're embedded. Um, they're, they have a, a, some kind of neutrality, um, um, although we can argue about um, their larger neutrality, but they are, they are in between um, various groups, in between nations, um, and in that space of in-betweenness, they can make images that other actors uh, may not be able to, to do. Mm. Could you say how this relates to the rest of Asia? Or you, you've talked about how this, this story is connecting the United States to China. Mm-hmm. Um, but could you tell us like, how this might connect to the rest of Asia or the rest of the world? Um, or if there's like bigger lessons uh, that we can take from this and see at work in other places? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, so, in terms of the, the some of the some of the research that I, I have done, um, I've noticed that the missionaries, um, beyond being prolific letter writers, um, writing you know every week, every day to families in the U.S., are also writing to colleagues in Japan, in uh, Korea, in other parts of China, um, some in Taiwan, and they're sending images. Um, and one example I found in one missionary family who was based in North China, in their collection, they, I, start, I started seeing images of Korea popping up in files that they had collected. And turned out they were corresponding with um, a missionary who was based in, uh, in uh, what is now North Korea, close to the Chinese border, and exchanging photographs. And that missionary was sending images of his mission. The people in China were sending, I presume, images back to him. And it's this visual conversation that's taking place between missionaries. Um, and, and these images are incredibly detailed. And the, the missionary in Korea has typed on the back of some of these prints the location, the people, um, the, the different kinds of institutions that are in the image or related to the image and they are having this conversation with colleagues in China. So within the missionary enterprise itself, people are circulating images across the Pacific, within East Asia, um, and, and having those kinds of contacts. So I think one of the, the encouragements or uh, open questions that I have is, what else is out there? Missionaries with cameras were all over East Asia. 
Um, certainly there remains so much more to be explored, so much to be discovered, and we can gain these visual perspectives on various parts of modern East Asia writ large um, from this immense body of missionary visual material. And do you have a sense of what happened to the missionaries after they got kicked out of China? Ah. Did they remain in Asia, Hong Kong, or did they go back to the U.S.? Oh, yeah. Uh, they, they, they go everywhere. Um, so a number of the Hankies, for example, they return to the U.S. and they stay here uh, after 1949. Um, the uh, other families that I've worked with, some of them go to Thailand, and they, they use the same cameras they used in China um, in Thailand and start shooting a whole bunch of pictures, uh, photographs, color slides um, of another experience in Thailand. Uh, the Scovels, um, the family with that smuggled film and the one that fell between the walls, they go on to India and they work there for years. So they essentially become this diasporic movement and they leave for other parts of Asia, um, other parts of the world, and they take their cameras with them. And that's another story. Have you gained any insight on people trying to tackle, like, make sense and make order out of this very sprawling archive? Well, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I, I would say that, um, you know, it really has to do with how, um, with this huge amount of, uh, of material, um, I, I tend to think of it as multiple fabrics, um, multiple um, modes of experience, uh, certainly historians of the future thinking about our current uh, world saturated with images, um, having to work with YouTube and, you know, ev- uh, all these, um, Instagram feeds, for example, that we now create, yeah. um, certainly it, it comes back to t- the stories that we want to tell, um, the kinds of experiences we can kind of pull from the fabric of this, uh, sea of, of images, um, that in a way, the missionaries and the Chinese Christians and others that I, I have looked at in this project were in a way living in a uh, similar kind of increasingly connected world, increasingly um, visualized world. And I see them trying to make sense of how our image is going to be used, how we are mm-hmm. making images and they're asking the same questions we are. So in a way, it may not be a question that we can answer, but it's certainly one that we can try to grapple with over time. Yeah, I, I was kind of wondering that of like, if you think of the missionaries as aesthetic, like they're from an aesthetic mm-hmm. perspective mm-hmm. or as artists, mm-hmm. um, are they doing original work? Like, or are they drawing from Hollywood or journalism? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, or are they like forging new territory? Mm-hmm. And and especially like, you know, after the period you study in the 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. the term mass media mm-hmm. gains wide currency and then governments mm-hmm. everywhere, you know, take these tools mm-hmm. uh, enthusiastically into their own hands. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, where do you see the missionaries from, from that perspective? Sure. So with John McGee, for example, in Nanjing, he is doing what we would call investigative photojournalism in that he's taking this mobile camera um, and going out into the streets of Nanjing and he's mo- shooting these movies. And then he interviews people he's meeting on the street, people he's um, filming, um, survivors of Japanese military atrocities. And he's writing down 
pages and pages of film notes uh, to accompany the movies. And um, his camera work is, I mean, it's, it's a little bit shaky. Um, you can tell that he's making this under stress. Um, and this is the kind of filmmaking that we see in later war movies, um, you know, handheld cameras on the scene, reportage of documentary movies. Um, and he's doing this in 1937, 38 in Nanjing. So he's almost prefiguring this later kind of movie making without knowing it um, and using whatever means he can uh, to get this out into um, global mass media of his time. Um, so certainly there, there's that example. Yeah. yeah, well, thanks so much for, for uh, enthusiastically doing our podcast. <laughs> well, thank, thanks for, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Check out our website, transasiapod.history.wisc.edu. Or you can find us on Twitter, at TransAsiaPod. Join us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world. Our podcast is sponsored by UW-Madison's Department of History and our podcast artwork is designed and created by Katherine Randall.